Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. Today we turn our attention to the remarkable recovery in Australian jobs over the June period as the nation grapples with the Delta variant of COVID. With the national level now at 4.9%, unemployment is 0.6 percentage points ahead of the federal budget's forecast for June, and the result comes after more than 115,000 people found work in May. Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has come out saying that the central bank expect that, will expect that unemployment will need to be sustained in the low fours or 4% for uh, full employment to happen and to put broad upward pressure on wages. There were around 362,000 job vacancies in May 2021, which is the highest number recorded in Australia and 69,000 more than February 2021. In fact, this is the tightest job market seen for decades. But of course, these figures have happened before the most recent major outbreak of COVID-19. So now the question remains, can this recovery be sustained or will the lockdowns in Sydney and Melbourne ruin the rebound? Here to discuss these remarkable times, we're very fortunate to be joined by a former senior policy advisor at the UK Debt Management Office, He's a former economist with the New South Wales Treasury and now has earned the rank of Head of Australian Economics for the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Gareth Ed, welcome back to Nucleus Investment Insight. Uh, also joining us on the line is our own Head of Australian Economics, Leith Van Onselen. Hello to you, Leith. Yeah, g'day, Tim. G'day, everyone. Hi, Gareth. Uh, I'm sorry I'm not on camera today. Uh, my internet uh, is playing up quite significantly. So I'm getting pretty slow speed, so I'm just dialing in uh, uh, wirelessly. So uh, you wait to see my, my ugly mug. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, mate. You're just enjoying that NBN experience. Um, and, and also here to share his thoughts on the future of the remarkable jobs recovery uh, and how, of course, they may influence our portfolios. I'm joined by Nucleus Wells Head of Investments, Damien Klassen. Hello to you, Damien. Hi, Jim. Good to have you on as well. Just a quick reminder before we get started, if you haven't already, subscribe and click on the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. Uh, we also ask if you'd like to take a moment to click like on the video now to help our show grow. And for those listening in live, feel free to drop in your questions in the YouTube live stream chat to have them answered along the way. So let's jump into it for today. So our uh, agenda for today is going to kick off uh, just around the, the top topics, I guess. Australia's unemployment rate uh, fell to the decade low in June. Uh, talking around the, the, the tightest job market, as I mentioned uh, previously there, some of the drivers, so um, stimulus and closed borders. Uh, how low can unemployment go and, and what might it translate into, uh, or will it translate into higher growth, I should say? Uh, will the current lockdowns ruin the rebound? It's going to be quite interesting to hear the gents' thoughts on that one as well. Uh, and then, of course, implications for, for monetary policy um, and really just yeah, sort of seeing uh, where the RBA might, uh, might go from here as well. So with no further ado, we'll kick off uh, today's show. It's going to be a huge one. We've got a handful of guests. We've got technology uh, up and down, but uh, we'll get there. I'm really looking forward to it. Leith, the spectacular labour market rebound, mate. That's right, mate. This is all backward-looking stuff. Uh, so if I was to have this chat two weeks ago, I'd be high-fiving or three weeks ago, more like it, uh, because obviously we wouldn't have had lockdowns across Sydney, Melbourne and South Australia, which uh, obviously could dampen the party going forward. So 
this analysis I'm about to present is pretty much backward looking uh, and and covers the recent rebound rather than you know what's obviously facing us in the period ahead, which we can talk about a bit later. But uh, putting that aside, um, yeah, the the June labour market numbers came out last week and they were quite frankly spectacular. Uh, Australia's unemployment rate fell to a decade low of 4.9%, uh, which again was the lowest we've seen I think since uh, June uh, 2011, so exactly a decade. Uh, it has totally obliterated the RBA's forecast, which basically forecast I think double that at around about this time. Um, and the spectacular thing is this came at the same time as the, the employment to population rate for 15 to 65 year olds also rose to their highest ever level of about 76%. And just to add a further cherry on top, the number of job ads for unemployed and underemployed is now running at the low on in recorded history in records dating back to around about the early 1980s. So it's a absolutely spectacular jobs rebound. That's pretty much obliterated everyone's forecast. Um, and it's, you know, quite frankly amazing uh, what, where we've gotten to, to think that only a couple of quarters ago we were experiencing our deepest recession since pretty much the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And now we're experiencing pretty much the tightest job market I've seen probably in my lifetime. Yep. And uh, the lowest unemployment rate for about a decade and an underemployment rate we haven't seen uh, pretty much for about seven years, seven or eight years. So it's uh, quite a remarkable rebound. Now, the way I see it, there are two major drivers of this, which uh, Gareth can speak to quite, um, you know, quite frankly, because some of his research actually has come from him. And effectively, the most obvious one that we've all seen is the enormous stimulus package. So we saw hundreds of billions of dollars pumped into the Australian economy, which has obviously boosted labour demand. But the less obvious thing is that we've actually had a, Australia's labour supply grow far more slowly uh, than we've seen over the past 15 years, due to firstly a decline in non-resident workers, so temporary workers across the economy, as well as fewer migrants arriving because of a obviously closed border. Um, and what this has meant is that basically with the strong uplift in labour demand, uh, butting heads with uh, reduced labour supply, we've seen a big uh, shift downwards in unemployment and underemployment and an incredibly tight labour market. Uh, and in fact, uh, the Guardian's Greg Jericho, econ- uh, economist at the Guardian, um, forecast a few days ago that if the unemployment that if the labor market had grown at its pre-COVID rate, Australia's unemployment rate in June would have been about six point two percent, not four point nine percent. So effectively not having so many uh, migrant workers arrive, um, pre-COVID we're getting about 180,000 a year. Uh, has meant that Australia's labor market has tightened quite uh, significantly. And that's obviously pushed down uh, un- unemployment and underemployment, uh, led to a massive tightening the labor market that should hopefully uh, follow through with higher wage growth in the future. Um, and before I kick it over to Gareth and just ask his thoughts, I'll just skip ahead one chart. Um, historically, wage growth in Australia correlated fairly strongly with the underemployment rate and uh, sorry, the under underutilization rate, which mm-hmm. is both unemployment and uh, underemployment combined. 
And basically, the last time we saw an underutilisation rate of 12.8%, which is what it is currently, was around April 2013. And uh, basically, the Reserve Bank reckons that for us to see wage growth would go back to around 3%, which we haven't seen over a decade. Um, we effectively need to see unemployment fall below 4.5% and obviously uh, underutilisation to fall uh, alongside that. So pre, uh, pre, pre uh, the current lockdowns, um, as of this data, Australia was facing a situation where the labour market was getting incredibly tight and we were more than likely going to face um, some decent wage rises and uh, in turn, you know, rising inflation as well. Um, so that's that's pretty much the 20,000-foot summary there of the Australian labour market as of June, uh, pre these lockdowns. Uh, incredibly tight, smashed all everyone's forecasts and uh, delivered by huge stimulus alongside closed borders. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. Thanks for that, Lee. Um, hand over to Gareth, if you like. I mean, we've had an incredible recovery in jobs uh, up until June. Um, you know, at Commonwealth Bank, we, we'd been very optimistic on how quickly the economy would rebound, um, largely because we thought if we can get on top of the health outcomes, there is an extraordinary amount of stimulus in the system. Mm. Uh, that'll generate a broad-based lift in um, spending, GDP, and, and that'll turn into higher headcount, which is what we've seen. And then, of course, you couple on top of that the fact that we've just had very little growth in labour market supply with the borders closed. Uh, the unemployment rate has ended up dropping very, very quickly. Um, now, we our most recent forecast was for the unemployment rate to keep coming down to be 4.5% at the end of this year, 4% at the end of next year. Uh, but clearly now that that's not going to happen, certainly uh, this year's forecast. I mean, the, the shock we've got now uh, to the labour market, particularly in New South Wales, um, yeah. because of the restrictions, is going to be very, very large. It's a little bit harder to call what's going on in Victoria now because it might turn out to be the case that you can get the numbers uh, heading back down towards zero and, and can, can fully reopen. But, I mean, here in New South Wales, uh, we've been in so lockdown uh, for the best part of uh, four weeks now. And the number of um, daily new cases of COVID that are active in the community has actually been trending up over that period rather than down. Um, and I put out a note this morning saying, you know, basically we need to consider the scenario now that New South Wales actually does cannot achieve that objective of getting new cases back down to zero. And we're stuck in some sort of lockdown basically until the vaccine's been rolled out We've hit some kind of threshold around uh, vaccination rates that enable uh, restrictions to be fully eased. So I think right now it's it's there's sort of not a lot of point throwing out forecasts given um, how fluid the situation is. But th th there's no question in my mind, though, that the, the national labour market is going to go backwards now uh, over the next you know, three or four months until we get to a point where uh, the vaccine has been rolled out sufficiently so that restrictions can be eased again. But... I mean, the New South Wales labour market is so big that if we go through a big negative shock, which looks like is going to happen right now, uh, then that's going to be enough to take national outcomes backwards. Mm. Um, so I guess a, a couple of questions. Um, mm. And it's probably, this is a longer term one, is, um, you know, the US seemed to, like, but with uh, pre-COVID, with, with Trump, sort of, the, we had unemployment rates of hitting sort of three and a half percent. Um, and still no real signs of wage pressure. I guess, what do you, 
are you thinking? I guess where where are you thinking the the sort of level at, at where unemployment actually starts generating um, starts generating wage pressure? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's one of those things you don't actually know until you get there. But um, mm. you know, our discussions with our clients, um, particularly the, the, the corporates, um, you know, that, a lot of them were telling us that the wages pressures was already starting to come through. Um, yeah, bear in mind we haven't yet had the Q2 wage price index, uh, so that could show an upside surprise. But uh, we're, we've been of the view that wages growth or wages pressures were already starting to come through. I mean, you can see that in some of the business surveys. I mean, the NAB business survey, for example, uh, indicates that labour costs have been going up, uh, particularly over the last three months or so. Uh, there's another group out there called Zero um, that, that does accounting software, but they've been producing a wage series um, based on several hundred thousand small businesses, and that has really picked up a bit of steam in the last three months. So I think it was already um, starting to, to to occur. I mean, there's obviously lags uh, between what's going on and when the official data is going to pick up, but I think it was already on its way. Um, you know, there, there was lots of job vacancies in basically all industries. I mean, if you look at the vacancies data, every single industry that we have had an above average level of vacancies uh, as at May. I mean, that's going to change a little bit given, given what's going on here, particularly in New South Wales. But I think we're already getting to the place where wages growth uh, was going to pick up. Not, not, not picking up at the kind of levels that the Reserve Bank wants to see just yet, but we're on the right path. And I think, um, and, and sorry, so 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 what type of levels? I guess because I guess I'm thinking the the RBA is going to start start thinking, you know, four percent wage growth probably probably all right, and and five issues starting to get up there, or or have you got a different? Well, it, it depends what you think, uh, what they want versus what they would uh, tie the policy on. I mean, they've got an inflation target of two to three uh, yep. percent, obviously, and and they think that in order to have inflation sustainably within that range, you need wages growth of around 3%. Uh, mm -hmm. So I actually don't think they were looking to get wages up to around 4 or 5%. Uh, you know, 3% is the kind of level that gets you has uh, gets you inflation sustainably within the target, anything more than that, and you're talking about inflation exceeding the target. Uh, so I think, you know, an unemployment rate around 4.5%, uh, as long as underemployment, and that's a key thing, isn't too high, then you know, that's going to get wages growth up around 3%, which is uh, means you're basically hitting your inflation target. So, so I so you're you're I guess what you're looking for wages to be sort of half of the, in terms of real wage growth to be sort of half a percent. Is that what you're sort of saying? Yeah, that, that's right, uh, and I think that's fair based on um, what what recent productivity outcomes have been like. Um, you know, the the, the 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 reality is that if you're going to have wages growth sort of in excess of that, unless you've got some huge productivity dividend coming through. Um, then you're going to have quite a bit of inflation off the back of that. So our view had been uh, that once wages growth was up around 3%, that would be enough for the RBA to normalise policy. Um, you know, we, we thought up until very recently that we'd be in that place um, by the second half of next year. I think right now what's going on in New South Wales is really effectively pushing the timing of everything back, given this the, the shock here looks like it's going to be pretty significant. Mm -hmm. um Gareth, a couple of quick ones. Um, so, yep. obviously, coming coming from uh, Victoria is a bit of a you know lockdown veteran. It, you, you sound a little bit deflated, mate. You, you're already calling permanent lockdown until um, the vaccine level. Uh, 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel your pain, yeah. but you know, cheer up. It will get better. Uh, that's, 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 that's no problems there. Um, or, you, or you'll you just might, get used to it. Yeah, you might want to start yeah, by locking down weeks, your mate. when you have a lockdown. Oh, I can hear you now. You're back. Yeah. Oh, that's good, mate. 
Yeah, look, just just on the lockdown, I, I, I suppose the the reason why we're we're kind of thinking like that at the moment is, you know, we know that the vaccine rollout's underway, so there is an end, uh, a finish line, if you like. And you know, we we also know what the reaction function to policymakers is, and that is that they want to get COVID cases right down to to zero, or they won't uh, reopen or ease the restrictions in any material sense. And I'm just watching the daily cases and thinking, well, if we're not heading down towards zero. And we've been doing this now for four weeks. We're sort of getting to the point where you know, the base case is almost becoming we just stay this way until whatever percentage of the population has been vaccinated and then and then restrictions are fully eased. And that's kind of almost the worst case, but we're sort of drifting towards that with each passing day where the cases are going up rather than down. Mm. It is also important to remember, though, that um, Melbourne's cases didn't peak, I don't think, till about seventh week of lockdown. So, yeah, just based on that trajectory, New South Wales could have another couple of weeks before it hits the peak and then it starts to fall down. Um, yeah, uh, that would be an idea. I mean, but, but, and I don't obviously know too much about these different variants and all that sort of stuff, but, you know, the, the yeah. consensus seems to be that Delta is far more contagious, in which mm-hmm. case it just may turn out to be the case. You just, you can't do what you did previously once you've got too many cases out there circulating around. Yeah, it's a massive unknown. <laughs> it's pretty much thrown all forecasts out the window, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and the other thing, I guess the main thing for, for us then is we, we've sort of been looking upon this as very much, as a, the, you know, a manipulated market in, in all senses, whether it be from a federal government, you know, preventing companies from going broke and handing over lots of cash to companies or the RBA sort of running, you know, zero rates and, and giving giving money to banks at, uh, at 10 basis points. Um, so the, I guess the question really is uh, how much, at what stage do you think, we we start to see more fiscal support from from um, from federal government. Uh, good 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 question. I think um, I think if it become if there becomes a sort of realization, uh, certainly within uh, in public, that we're going to be facing faced with restrictions until the vaccine is fully rolled out, uh, then I think you would see uh, the federal government in particular step up with more stimulus. I mean, right now, um, the the state premier here is still sort of talking as though there's a way out of this and that we will get on top of it and the restrictions will be eased. But you would have to think that um, if every day, with each passing day, if it looks like that objective, not only are we not moving towards it, but we're actually moving further away from it, then I would think at some point uh, that sort of becomes the realisation that we are in this for a lot longer than what has been pencilled in. And therefore, uh, you almost back thinking, well, this is the date we get out of it based on the vaccine schedule. Therefore, what need, what support do we need to put in between now and then, so that when we come out of it, uh, we've minimised the, the the damage that could have been done. We've kept all those viable businesses in the lead up to this um, still intact, and then we can springboard out of it. Um, I would imagine that that's that's what the thinking is going to be. It just it just when that when that's realised, and you're probably looking at another week or so of of of, of what has been going on, um, knowing that restrictions have been further tightened. And if it looks within a week's time that we're not making any progress, then I would think the narrative probably shifts from policymakers. Absolutely. Well, also, we've got to remember that the federal government's faced an election, you know, by May next year. So it's bacon's going to be on the line. Uh, on top of that, we've had all obviously the business lobbies, etc., lobby pretty hard for a return of the JobKeeper 3.0 or 2.0. So I think it's pretty much a fait complete that there's going to be more stimulus coming pretty shortly, um, if for no other reason, for political reasons, even though it's required economically. That's right. I mean, it's the policy of least regret too. Now, I mean, with the finish line inside, 
been a vaccine rollout, you've only got to bridge the economy for another probably three or four months. Uh, why not throw the kitchen sink out of it? Uh, if it turns out you did too much, so be it. If it turns out you didn't do enough, well, then you've got problems that you could have avoided. So I think that's ultimately the path they'll go down. Yeah. Uh, Gareth, can I, um, I want to touch on an area which obviously dear to my heart, um, and I know you've written about it a fair bit, yeah. But what do you think the impact of Australia's closed border to migrant workers is playing and obviously tightening the labour market and what impact do you think it'll have on wages going forward in light of Phil Lowe's recent comments? I pretty much know what your answer is going to be, but I'll uh, put it out there anyway. Yeah, yeah, look, it's something that, um, and you know this, that I was writing about this pre-COVID um, because it sort of seemed like there was this mystery out there as to why wages growth had been so weak. Um, and to me, it, there was no real mystery to it. It was basically um, there was an imbalance between the supply and demand of labour. And that meant that wages pressures weren't actually coming through. And, and I think one of the key reasons why we had that imbalance was the supply of labour was very, very strong. Um, and, you know, running a very large migrant intake each year was kind of the preemptive strike on this idea that there were skill shortages in the economy. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, if there were lots of skill shortages, we would have had much higher wages outcomes than what we had pre-COVID. Um, but a lot of people sort of didn't kind of recognise that. Whereas I think what's happened this time around through COVID is that people have realised that if you, and it's obviously been a radical shift, suddenly we don't have anyone arriving, but if you cut off the supply of labour, uh, but you've got a lot of demand for workers, particularly because the government put so much stimulus into the economy, then you're going to get these um, skill shortages pop up everywhere, and that's going to really shift the bargaining position uh, from employers to employees. We haven't yet seen the wages data turn, albeit that I think uh, we might see that in Q2 wage price index. But I think ultimately, uh, if you've, you've got a lot less uh, growth in labour supply and you're stimulating the economy, then you've got a much better chance of higher wages coming through. Um, I think that would have happened uh, quite a bit, actually, through the second half of this year, had it not been for what's going on in, in New South Wales. A bit harder to, to call next year because we don't really know what a reopening of the borders is actually going to look like. But I sort of our working assumption is that we're not going to bounce back to the kind of pre-COVID levels of net overseas migration anytime soon. And that'll mean you've got a much better chance of wages pressures actually coming through. Mm. Have you have you pretty much read the um, RBA... Phil Lowe's comments as kind of a veiled attack on returning to those sort of pre-COVID levels of immigration. Yeah. Um, that's why I read it, but I could be reading it through my own biased sort of lens. <laughs> yeah, I'm, But um, yeah, to me, to me, it just seems like he, he keeps saying that we need to get unemployment below 4.5%. We need the labor market to tighten further in order to achieve a sort of employment and inflation rate target and to drive wage growth back up to 3%. And obviously, the flip side of that is if you, you know, return to bringing 180,000 migrant workers into the economy every year, as we did pre-COVID, then that's going to make policy calls a lot harder to be. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure whether or not there was a political ang angle coming through it. I think I think what the governor was doing there is basically um, giving them or acknowledging that their wages forecast may not come to fruition if it turns out to be the case that the borders stay closed for longer. Um, because they've been, I mean, their, their 2024 forward guidance around the cash rate has really been about this idea that 
Um, the economy can do well, but it's going to take a long time for wages pressures to emerge and for inflation pressures to come through. And I think they probably saw those job vacancies figures in May against where the unemployment rate was and thought, hang on a minute, the labour market is tightening at a much quicker rate than we thought. Maybe it's going to be turned out to be the case that wages actually pressures come through. And part of that story could actually be what's going on in terms of foreign labour. So I think they were kind of recognising that. Um, but it, it's an interesting one as to whether or not there was a political angle to it, because uh, if there is, what, what the governor is really saying uh, to, to the Commonwealth government is, if we're going to meet our inflation target, we're going to see we're going to see higher wages growth. We kind of need you guys to get the immigration settings right. We'll look after the monetary policy settings, and then we'll have uh, both levers of policy pulling in the same direction to generate the outcomes that we want to see. I mean, that 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 could have also been part of why he said that. Yeah. Spot on. Well, I mean, he's pretty much spent uh, the previous five to six years, or however long he was in his uh, term of governor, as basically blaming everything else up until the last few months, where he's finally, you know, acknowledging off in the room. Yeah, I mean, they had a horrible uh, forecasting record on wages growth, uh, and then, and then by extension, inflation in the lead up to COVID. I mean. There's some funny funny chart if you Google RBA and wages, but what you can see is a history of what they were forecasting in terms of wages growth for many years against wages outcomes. And, and they kind of always had wages growth going up um, pretty much from the end of the mining boom, even though it turned out to be the case for many years, wages growth was slowing. And at no point you know, over that period did they sort of acknowledge, or certainly publicly, that um, maybe these wage, wages growth isn't stepping up because you know, there's a couple hundred thousand people you know, year on year arriving and the bulk of those people uh, want, want a job and that's kind of putting downward pressure then on wages. So, um, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating space. So I think it's not binary either. It's not like you have closed borders or you have several hundred thousand people coming in. I mean, there's, there'd be a level of... Uh, we don't know what it is, but there'd be a level of um, sort of net overseas migration that kind of means you don't get you know, uh, big imbalances between uh, you know, supply and demand for labour such that work um, employers are saying, look, we just cannot get uh, workers. Uh, but equally, you don't have too much supply coming through so that you, know, you can, get, can get wages growth up around 3% or higher. So, um, yeah, really interesting space. And then we'll kind of I think the focus will be firmly on it once uh, once international borders are reopened, and uh, we're not we're no longer worried about COVID, if you like. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a, um, a unique experiment that we, that we can run now, which you wouldn't have had to do otherwise. Obviously, we've got but, no choice but to keep the yeah. border shut. So now, it's the result over the next year. I guess what I'm wondering, though, from you, in, in your view, uh, Gareth, hmm. has do you think that in in policy circles, in political policy circles, they've come, they've they've, they've sort of realised because it does seem that very much the RBA has changed its tune towards saying no, no, it's not a problem to to actually, yeah, maybe this is why we got our forecast wrong for so many years. Um, it's you know, it's now not a good thing, but uh, I guess I guess it doesn't seem to me as if the government has yet come to that same conclusion, and, and there are sort of they've obviously got you know a reasonable amount of vested interests. Um, in business lobbies and 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 the nationals, you know, in terms of the, the farmers looking for for, for cheap um, pickers, uh, and the Australian Treasury, don't you? Yeah, the Australian Treasury. So I mean, it's it, it's it's all it's all great to say. Yes, we've got one of our um, you know the RBA's come to come to the right conclusion, but um, if the you know that the RBA doesn't control it, as we said, and so if the federal government hasn't come to that conclusion, um, it could be a while yet before we see 
them lining up. I don't know. What yeah, do you, that, what do you... yeah, good points. It's true. Um, although I think there's more people than just the RBA kind of recognising this now. I mean, a lot of uh, commentators on the economy, a lot of economists that are reasonably well-known have kind of um, changed their tune a little bit to recognise this. So I think there's a little bit more mainstream support uh, around recognising the idea that the level of immigration has an impact on wages. It's a little bit unfortunate, well, for many reasons, where that um, COVID's resurfaced during a lockdown, um, but just to focus in on um, labour market outcomes and wages, it's a little bit unfortunate now that we may not see over the second half of this year that the labour market continue to tighten and then wages growth actually really start to come through because mm-hmm. if we were to see that, then we would actually have the evidence to say, look, this is how much wages yeah. growth has actually picked up with a sudden drop off in labour market supply. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of, and, and this is you know, now sort of not as relevant, but sort of four or five weeks ago, um, you know, there was a lot of talk around, oh, well, if we get any inflation pressures coming through, maybe they're um, transitory. I was really fascinated as to what the Reserve Bank would forecast around wages growth if it turned out to be the case that wages growth really was accelerating given the tightness in the labour market, do they then kind of plug into their forecast this idea that wages pressures are transitory because the borders are closed, in which case they then have to kind of forecast wages growth to go back down, uh, you know, at some point in 2023, say, when the borders are open. And then they would be explicitly acknowledging through their forecasts the link between wages and immigration. Now, it may not may turn out to be the case that they don't have to do that if this shock over the next few months is big enough. But you know, it really would have put the spotlight on it. And I think um, if we did start to see some wages pressures come through, then you'd get more and more support for this idea that wage outcomes and labour supply are linked, which is very intuitive to me. But, you know, pre-COVID, there wasn't yeah. a lot of support for that. And then, you know, you would have more people question, I think, the government's policy around immigration and what exactly they're trying to achieve. You know, what what do you really want, guys? I mean, that's another way of putting it. Do you want growth just for growth's sake? Do you want high nominal outcomes? What What is it that you really want? Tell us that and then, you know, calibrate your policy settings to achieve that. Mm. Well, there's – because there's some, a couple of um, – uh, I guess on a similar note, you know, that we, one of the things Leith brought up was this um, the issue about the, the unemployment rate and, and the vacancy rate, sort of the, mm. that ratio being quite um, – Low or high, depending upon which one he'd put on the bottom. I can't remember which one it was, but it's sort of at, at record levels, and and that's what yeah, it comes so- to this whole um, the you know the, this idea of the beverage curve. I guess, and for people who are listening in, it's sort of this idea that you've got um, a relationship between unemployment and vacancy rate, where when you've got high unemployment, um, uh, you'll have a low vacancy rate, and then and and then as your vacancy rate gets higher, you know you get more people employed, and you sort of get this sort of relatively you get a, a curved line um, relationship to it. And during the uh, the two thousand and the, the the financial crisis in two thousand and eight two thousand and nine, that curve seemed to take a big jump up in, in terms of sort of there's a structural change in terms of you actually needed a lot more vacancies, um, uh, and, and I think the you know the, the reasoning behind that was that um, you had a bunch of people who used to build houses and all of a sudden they don't need to build houses anymore, but now there were other jobs in the that, but they needed to actually change industries, and I think there's probably a certain element of that within our current system as well is that you know we've got a bunch of unemployed um you know airline hostesses and 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 hosts and and you've got a bunch of unemployed um people in the whole tourism industry that sort of need to be moved more into to other sort of manufacturing jobs or something where there are where there is this demand at the moment 
with the idea that actually potentially they'll need to move back at, at, at some stage as well once you get reopenings. So, so there's potentially this, I guess that we, uh, I, I guess with if there are large structural changes, are you seeing that's a a um, a sort of a bit of a one-off hit for wages, or or more of an ongoing, or or is it just a, a temporary? Factor? Well, I'm I'm not so sure about that because, as I said, there are above-average level of vacancies in every single industry. Um, now that that level of detail does not go down to aviation, for example, and it's mm. clear that you know that's that's an industry that has still been negatively impacted um, through this and hasn't rebounded like pretty much every other part of the economy. But if you take it up a up a sort of a notch to a higher level, uh, you know, aviation I think would come under transport, and in transport there was above average level of vacancies. I mean, it was so broad based. Yep. Uh, yeah, not just education. Uh, yep, still above above average. So what we had a look at is what what is the average level of vacancies as a share of uh, employment for each industry, and mm. how are we tracking now relative to that to that level? And education, funny you mentioned that was the one that was only just above average. So that was kind of the weakest of all the industries, but yet every single industry was above average. So I think, um, you know, and I should sort of add as well, if you if you cut up the data other ways and the IBI, Internet Vacancies Index, uh, the government one is very good for this. You can cut up the job vacancies by skill level. And of course, you've, you've got them by jurisdiction. And it didn't matter which way you, you, you were cutting them up as a kind of just, just gone the last few months. Uh, it was every industry, it was every part of the country, and it was all skill levels. So it was an incredible situation. I mean, we've never seen that kind of imbalance between vacancies and um, and the level of employment. And you know, that, that gave me so much confidence that we were going to see very, very good outcomes over the second half of this year. Obviously, that was conditional on COVID not coming back, and you know, it's a different story now, but the, the data looked incredibly good. Mm. And And... How much of that do you, would you put down to, you know, obviously businesses and in particular small businesses um, got some pretty decent um, uh, benefits from, from governments in, in terms of, you know, PAYG and things like that that were returned. And um, I guess it's sort of a lot of, a lot of things that probably didn't occur to, to people at a top line level, but there was sort of, uh, you know, the government was obviously very generous to, to businesses. Um and as that starts to fade off over the next few months, you know, I guess how much of, yeah, how much of the do you, do you put down to that, or how much do you think of it is, is actually just really a genuine, real bounce back, and it's a, um, you know, and a lack of supply. Well, I, I thought at the time it was a real bounce back because we had, you know, JobKeeper expire uh, at the end of March, and there, were a lot of con- there was a lot of concern at the time around, you know, we might see some job losses over the next few months with that expiry. It turned out to be the case that uh, employment growth. They hit a little pothole in, in April, and then, as you said at the beginning, it jumped by 115,000 odd in May. I was up by around 30,000 in June. So, you know, the government was able to withdraw the stimulus, but because domestic demand was so strong, um, you know, households were sitting on so much uh, in the way of savings. There were lots of other programs, you know, home builder and whatnot, supporting construction, and you know, the economy was was doing very, very well. And of course. Um, Australians weren't holidaying overseas, so you know, given that we've been spending twice as much holidaying abroad as what we get from uh, overseas tourists, there's a lot more money that could be spent uh, domestically, be it on holidays or just just other other, other goods or services spent. So I, I think it was genuine, uh, and it kind of shows. And we should sort of add as well, interest rates are at record lows, so that you're mm. obviously getting that 
the, the support for monetary policy. But yeah, I, I, th I thought that the economy was in a, a brilliant position, to be honest, um, as at the end of June, as at the end of June, we were going to see very, very strong outcomes through the through the rest of this year had it not been for COVID. Uh, and the business surveys were reflecting that. I mean, in that business survey, I, as much as I don't like giving other banks plugs, I mean, that's a that's a very good survey. And that was, you know, we had reads on business conditions and, and business confidence at their highest level in the survey's history, which goes back to the 90s. Capacity utilisation was very, very high. I mean, consistent with an unemployment rate down near 3%. So the economy was was really roaring along, um, but it's just hit a massive setback right now, given um, restrictions have been imposed in in the two biggest cities. Mm. It's also important to remember, and touching it, that household saved two hundred billion dollars worth of savings in the March quarter, which is by far the biggest you know mountain of savings we've seen on record, and that's effectively pent up stimulus. Well, sorry, stimulus that's now available to be uh, to be spent, you know, the quarters ahead. So that just gives a massive tailwind for consumption and um, housing, everything. Yeah, that, that, that's spot on. And then you can also throw in the tailwind of rising home prices, uh, which makes people feel better, so they spend a little bit more. Commodity prices, um, you know, at very, very high levels. The resources sector has been doing very well. I mean, before this lockdown, I was over in WA seeing uh, a range of clients over there, and I mean, all the, the, the our clients in the mining industry were were, were loving life. Mm. You had a whole lot of circumstances which were just so supportive of the economy, uh, but we've thrown a bucket of cold water over it with um, with these restrictions. But you know, it's amazing to think we came out of our biggest shock in kind of well as far back as you'd like to go, and you know, with all the stimulus put in, coupled with a few other things that were working in our favour, we ended up. Uh, within the, an economy that was sort of firing on all cylinders in a way that we hadn't seen since the mining boom. And and so the yep. question, yeah. So so for, do you think in policy circles, then they'll be going, okay, we we just need to do the same thing again. We need to make sure we've got a big stimulus coming, or are they sort of like, well, we've we've had our big stimulus. Let's let's just try and keep things to to to, to the minimum we need to to keep things ticking over. Yeah, I mean, good question. We'll kind of find out, I think, in the next probably couple of weeks. But I, I would think they'll go um, big again. I mean, as I keep sort of coming back, the finish line is in sight. I mean, if we didn't have a vaccine or it looked like you know there were problems with it or whatnot, and we're talking years away, then it might be a different story. But you know, if you sort of backstole for October, November, where the vaccine rate should be at a, a threshold when you can reopen, then you're kind of talking about supporting the economy only for another uh, four months or so. I mean... There's, there's not a lot of downside in my mind of, of, of going big. Um, you know, at the end of the day, if it turns out that it, you know, by going big, um, you end up generating more inflation and whatnot off the back of it. Well, in, in a lot of ways, you've been trying to, Reserve Bank's been trying to achieve that anyway. Um, so why not do it? And I, actually, just on that as well, I should say that I think there's been a shift in um, fiscal policy more generally. You know, and we saw that in the May budget this year. I mean, the the stimulus that we had put into the economy last year was quote unquote sort of emergency emergency support for the economy. And you know, it was it was possible that the government, you know, in May this year sort of embarked on a budget repair style strategy, um, you know, showed that they wanted fiscal restraint and, and tried to kind of come up with some um, policy changes that meant uh, not that we got a balanced budget, but that the deficit came down uh, you know, at a rate that's far uh, quicker than what they've got penciled in. I mean, 
the the the, the fiscal settings in the budget this year were very expansionary, and the additional kind of money that the government got relative to their forecasts from higher commodity prices and a better performing economy, they effectively just plough that in into more expenditure. So I think that the government sort of come to this realization that um, maybe big spending is not 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 all that Def- bad, and you can generate some pretty good economic outcomes. Deficits don't matter, especially with the election next year. Well, that's right. That's and, yeah, this is a global thing. I should add too. I mean, it's the same in the US at the moment. Uh, I sort of feel like governments have kind of started to realise that. Hang on, you can run these big deficits. You can do it at low interest rates. The central bank can buy the bonds. Uh, what's not to like about spending money at the moment because the, the voters like it? Yeah, can I just say um, the one thing I'm looking at overseas probably more than anything at the moment is actually what's going on in the UK. So UK declared Freedom Day on Monday. So basically they lifted all remaining COVID restrictions. And the UK is pretty much the highest vaccinated country on in the world at the moment, at least fully vaccinated. And I think it's um, pretty much will point ahead to the rest of the world whether we can fully ease restrictions or not next few months ahead because a lot of countries are saying that the UK is now going to have a massive explosion in COVID infection. But the, the thing to look is not actually COVID infection. It's going to be on the number of hospitalizations and deaths that come out of it. And if we get a situation in the next week whereby the UK is fully opened up, it's highly vaccinated, and hospitalizations and deaths don't explode, that's pretty much the road. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll present the roadmap for Australia and other countries going ahead. Um, Flip side, if the UK fails and they get a massive ramp up in COVID infections, hospitalizations, and deaths, well, then that's going to throw the um, opening up narrative out the window. So that's kind of the one thing I'm looking at most at the moment overseas, because uh, it pretty much is a litmus test for Australia uh, as we, you know, embark on our vaccine rollout. What do you guys? And I'd argue that you, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely on the point, and, and I'd argue that the US as well offers not a bad. Um, uh, sort of petri dish as well in insofar as they've got some states that don't have high vaccination rates and, and other states that do. And so you've actually got, you know, within the one country, you've, you've even got, you know, areas that, that have and haven't and sort of trying to work out what, what the right level is. Um, they're, they're effectively running a big experiment across the whole thing going, well, is 40% enough? Is 50% enough? Is 70% enough? You know, across all these different areas to, to see what the, what the key number is. Yeah, yeah I'm certainly looking at the UK and hoping that it succeeds. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Jens, and that, that's the thing that financial markets are really focused on now too. I think if it turns out to be the case you know, within a couple of months that uh, UK hospitalisations have not gone up at all despite a surge in cases, then I think there'll be a, a real sense of um, you know uh, risk on in markets uh, because 2022, um, oh, sorry, risk off, um, because 2022 you can see that the global economy is going to do incredibly well because COVID will be a thing of the past, which is ultimately what we all want. Mm. Mm. No more lockdowns. <laughs> um, just just on that, I guess, um, Gareth, yeah, the thoughts, I guess, on uh, we, we've spoken a little bit around the um, the uh, the vacancy piece, and you sort of you mentioned there that there's not a whole lot of data on the, I guess, the quality of um, of the the vacancy, but. For mine, is there is there an element of um, I guess 
reflection maybe on where uh, the you know on, on on a spike being in the in the in the vacancy rate recently um, that will that'll sort of ebb away uh, as you know people are sort of using perhaps the lockdown period as a, as a time to um, think about sort of their next their next thing so it's sort of like in a way there's a financial element perhaps to it but also just a you know it's a it's a it's a chance for people to you know review what they're up to and and, and change from there it's a little bit a little bit abstract but you know is there, is there anything you thought in that from your end uh, yeah so i mean the the vacancies data is going to shift quite a bit um the, the next official abs re will be august vacancies but you probably want to look to the higher frequency vacancies like the anz series or the ibi series to get a sense just of how much this lockdown has actually changed things i mean uh it's going to have a big impact on on new south wales without a doubt um, you know, there'll be lots of businesses that won't be hiring through this period, and, and at the same, by the same token, there'll be lots of businesses that are actually standing down staff. So it's going to have a, a really big impact. Uh, Victoria, it's harder to say at the moment because we just don't know how long uh, your lockdown is going to go for. And then for the other states, it might turn out to be the case of you know what's going on here in New South Wales and Victoria doesn't really have too much of a negative impact. And local economies can can still do quite well. So I think it's sort of all up for grabs at the moment. But um, you, you've kind of got two different opposing forces at work at the moment in terms of businesses thinking about making kind of um, decisions for the medium term. Uh, one is you've still got all the uncertainty around lockdowns, uh, which might see some investment plans shelved for a little while or some uh, concerns around putting on more staff or expanding or whatnot. But then you've also got the, the vaccine rollout occurring where you can kind of see the finish line around sort of October, November. So, and, mm. and, and to the piece around watching overseas, I mean, uh, even if we're in lockdown, for example, here in, in New South Wales in six weeks time, uh, but you look overseas and the UK is doing fine with, you know, fully reopening, then I, I would think a lot of people would kind of look through the pain that we're in right now and say, look, 2022 is going to be a very good year. Um, you know, this still looks like there's going to be lots of support for the economy from government. Um, there'll be lots of stimulus. I mean, the, the, the amount of savings is going up literally every day, given we're in lockdown. There's going to be so much money there. And I think there'll just be so much pent up demand for households to want to get out and, and spend some money and do some things. So I, I kind of think, you know, the medium term outlook still still looks very good. And you'll see the labour market, I think, tighten uh, quite a bit through through the next. Sort of just following on to that as well. Um... In my experience, and I, I speak to people sort of all over the country that got interested in uh, investing with nuclear wealth. Uh, one of the things that sort of struck me, and I guess you know, obviously Sydney and Melbourne, um, from a quantum perspective, are, you know, are huge components of the economy. But what from the people I've been speaking to, um, are, you know, perhaps more regional, haven't been affected by COVID, you know, if if at all, in some cases, particularly looking at you, Queensland, um, and yet have you know picked up an enormous. Component. Well, basically all the, you know, from a business perspective, the um, cash flow boost and things like that, um, all, you know, all the way around the country. Um, it's easy to sort of focus on the pain points in the, in the big centres. But, um, you know, for mine, that's almost certainly got to, you know, lead into this, um, this unemployment rate. Is it, have you done much of a, um, a look into, you know, where, where, where it's sort of coming from? Is it, you know, are we finding there's actually very low levels of unemployment through the regions that have, you know, effectively, in some cases, I'm speaking to small business people where, um, you know, they've, they've had a 100% increase in, um, you know, in their uh, revenues for the year, obviously, um, through the, the government stimulus and whatnot. And that's going to, you know, naturally feed into them wanting to hire longer or hire more. Um, is, there, is there much data on that? 
Well, the, the ABS produces um, data at the regional level, but it gets pretty ropey. The, the more okay. granular you get, the more volatile it is. Um, but I would sort of, like you said, rely on your kind of discussions with, with businesses there. I mean, I did a few um, trips to kind of regional Australia uh, not too long ago and speaking with various clients. And you know, there was a very similar message coming through from Mebrio, and that was it was actually hard to attract workers and business was, was, was booming. Uh, it might might be the case though that um, this lockdown in in Sydney has a spillover uh, negative impact to regional New South Wales if people can't go and uh, holiday there and and whatnot. But um, yeah, without a doubt, regional Australia has done incredibly well through the COVID period, and you're kind of seeing that. Uh, one bit of data I would rely on is is around rents and property prices, and you're seeing in regional Australia, you know, both rents and and prices surge. Um, it's really reflecting a, a lift in demand for people to to go and live in different areas, and you know, that's a positive, been a positive shock for regional Australia. Hmm. Yes. So, well, I actually wanted to uh, to ask you your thoughts on on property. So, I guess there's a couple of things. There is um, there's obviously a lot of building going on at the moment, um, and and low population growth. You know, is there a? Yeah, I, I guess in terms of demand supply. Um, there's obviously a lot more demand for, for houses at the moment, but houses are, are much faster to build than, than apartments. And I'm just interested to know, you know when you think that, that supply will catch up with demand, if, if, if that's a prospect over the next few years. Well, I guess it depends what happens uh, with the international borders and what we see in terms of you know, the flow of people uh, coming back into Australia, because that'll have a, quite an impact on you know, the, the change in the flow of dwellings against the change in the flow of people. It's been amazing, though, really, that we've had kind of the international borders close, building a lot more properties, and yet um, you know, rents are actually going up <laughs> as well as prices. <laughs> and so outside of um, Sydney and Melbourne, uh, in the apartment space, I mean, vacancy rates have been well anchored. So you kind of think, well, what, how, how does all that work? Like, what's the, what's the missing ingredient here? I do wonder if there's a little bit, uh, there's a few changes in household formation actually taking place. So I, I, I kind of think you've, you've seen a lot more uh, first home buyer, buyers in, in the housing market. And a lot of first home buyers would either be living at home with their parents uh, or they'd be renting potentially in a flat chair. So if, you, if you've had a kind of an increase in the number of people that uh, had been living at home that have then gone out and bought a place, uh, an apartment or whatnot, and moved into it, then you can actually get the, 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 the stock of, or that you can be taking down new supply and dwellings without actually changing the population. And yep. I, I, I think that might be at play. Uh, equally, and I, don't, I haven't seen data on this, but I do wonder too if um, we've seen an increased use of, particularly in regional Australia, of properties for Airbnb purposes. So taking advantage of the fact we can't holiday abroad uh, more people going to regional Australia for holidays, and therefore uh, people have been buying properties, turning them up to, for, uh, to use it to see Airbnb, and then you kind of reduce the the stock there. And and one other thing I might think might be happening is because so many people are now working from home, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, that you know previously you might have had two people in a two bedroom apartment, and there's kind of a realization that if you're going to work from home. Uh, you can't really do that if you've got a flatmate and therefore you get a, a one-bedder living on your own or you get a two-bedder and convert a place to the office. So all of that, I think, would ultimately helps to explain why there hasn't been much growth in population and, and yet lots of supply of dwellings coming on and, and no real shift in the vacancy rate. 
Sorry, one of you going, go again, Lee. That was a bit. Oh, I was going to say, although um, approvals and everything have gone through the roof because of Home Builder, uh, most of the supply actually won't hit until next year. It's currently under construction now. So we won't actually see the supply hit until mm. 2022 when, yeah. we, when we'll see a tidal wave. Well, and and then I guess it's this question, isn't it, about saying okay, so so I think like I'm I'm on board completely with you in terms of I think it is household formation, as you said, yes, lots of extra savings and all that type of thing, and people, and the structural bit where people moving out of say Sydney and Melbourne apartments and into into houses more likely, whether it be regional or or even just within the the same city, um, and it sort of feels as if well, that's a that's doesn't seem like a long-term trend that seems like a shorter term trend in terms of you know if you build up a bit of bit of savings like you've got a year a, a year or so to run for that but maybe then you get your hand off as then you, your borders open up again and, and more people come in and so you know, your, your perfect scenario for a housing market is 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 you've got this extra demand for a little bit and then the borders open and that sort of drives your, your housing demand even further but your flip side is um if it's just a sort of a, a one-off structural change where everyone you get a, a boost in household formation and you get a bunch of people wanting to move into into houses versus, versus apartments and then you don't have a huge influx and you get a wave of um of building then maybe that sort of helps match the supply and demand up and so uh, you know i'm guessing it's probably more the former but uh, it'd be interesting your thoughts about whether it's a you know is it a is it a handoff or is it a is there going to be a bit of a gap in, or do we does demand and supply sort of reach yeah, um, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to say at the moment. I mean, I, it, I think there's a there's a there's a there's a story still we don't know the answer to as well, and that's around you know once COVID goes away, what kind of what number of days is it acceptable uh, not to not to be in the office, or can people work you know permanently remotely, and all of that I think is still up for grabs. And I think if it turns out to be the case that um, you know there's a a decent enough number of uh, employee, employers out there who say to their workers, you can actually work by and large remotely full time, but you know, occasionally we'll need you in the city. Then what you might end up seeing is people, uh, and these are people that are fortunate enough to own a home in Sydney or Melbourne, uh, potentially selling their house, uh, buying an apartment in the city, and then moving uh, somewhere regional and, and, and owning a house there. I mean, I, I know a few people have already done that. And again, if that was to, to take place, you'd end up with you know, um, you'd end up taking the supply of dwellings down um, by yeah. virtue of the fact that you've got more people out there owning two properties. And so yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me if, if, if a bit of that takes place over the next few years. Um, but look, I think ultimately resi construction is going to slow because home builders clearly um, created a boost in, in, in home construction that's not, not going to last. Um, and, you know, for, um, for what it's worth, our kind of forecasts are for resi construction to kind of slow over the... Over the, over the next year, pretty strong in the next kind of nine months or so and then come off. But you know, when thinking about property prices in the main, I think everything we've sort of learned over the over the recent past is that interest rates are the most important thing when thinking about the demand for property. Yes, absolutely. And we are seeing interest rates sort of, so, so you know, at the margin, just starting to tick up, I guess, as the RBA's um, uh, term funding facility is finished. Are you expecting that to keep continue? Or have you got sort of forecasting that to continue, or do you think that most of that's already in? Well, we thought that the fixed rates would would continue to go up in line with the market um, pricing in rate hikes and um, 
but but I think for the moment that that's kind of market pricing for hikes has been taken out because of um, what's been going on with COVID. So I don't think the fixed rates will be going up uh, too much too soon now until we get through this and markets go back to pricing in rate hikes. But ultimately, when that happens, you know, the fixed rates have got to come up quite a bit because they're, they're quite a bit below the standard variable rate right now. And a lot of that's been because of the term funding facility. So I think, you know, interest rates will drift higher and that'll take a bit of steam out of the housing market, but they're still very, very low in a historical sense. And um, I think households are still um, are still willing to, to pay, well, lending's still very strong um, just by virtue of the fact that, you know, anything with a two-handle on it, I think seems uh, pretty appealing to households. As a, as a mortgage rate loan? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's a very, very low level. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's below the rental yield in, in so many markets, which means if you can afford to, it's more attractive to uh, to buy than, than rent at the moment. Sure. Uh, one, one that I might just ask, um, uh, probably for our audience more than anything, although it hasn't come in today, but it does get asked uh, quite a lot. Uh, but I think you're, you're a perfect guy to ask um, is maybe just popping the forecasting hat on. So we get a lot of people um, who, you know, obviously reviewing an investment with us um, who are less than enamoured, let's just say, with the term deposit rates that are available now um, and probably for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, obviously, with the you know the term funding facility uh, potentially uh, will roll out. It is rolling off. Um, it's going to be pressure on on bank margins. Um, but you know, do you, what are your thoughts on term deposits? Where would they be, perhaps, in the next two to five years? If you if you're going to throw the forecasting out, won't hold you to it, of course. But yeah, <laughs> look, I mean, ultimately, the, the banks that set those rates, but um, I don't think they'd be going up in any material sense until the cash rate's going to go up, and the cash rate at the moment. You know, it looks like it's going to be on hold for, for, for a few more years. I mean, we, as I said, we, we thought November next year would be when the Reserve Bank would, would finally get around to raising the cash rate, but that was uh, not taking into account the latest lockdowns which were going in. So if, if that's pushed out until 2023, then I wouldn't think you'd see the term deposit rates rising in, until then. I mean, they're going to probably end up tracking what the cash rate does. Mm -hmm. It still looks like we're quite a long way away from, from when the cash rate might be going up. I should sure. just add to uh, just on the cash rate and, and any tightening cycle, I mean, the, the stopping off point uh, or, the, or the end point for, for rate hikes is going to be very, very low. Um, you know, and this comes into this idea of where a neutral interest rate is or basically what is the level of the cash rate uh, right now that would be consistent with inflation within target and full employment. And it's going to be lower now than it has been at any other point uh, in recent history because households carry so much debt. So you, mm -hmm. you get a lot of mileage basically out of um, out of a few rate hikes and we can even just jawboning a rate hike probably. Well, <laughs> well that's that's right. I mean, it kind of as you, as you get lower and lower, each rate cut um, has an exponentially large impact on uh, the interest cost of debt. So that goes down very quickly. But I mean, the reverse is true. So the interest cost on debt will go up very quickly with a few rate hikes. So we kind of think the central bank only has to get a, to about one and a quarter percent. And you've kind of taken the, the cash rate to a normal or neutral level. So that's going to mean that even if term deposit rates go up, they're, they're going to end up still at a very low level and probably be in uh, in real terms, they'll, they'll, you'll get a negative interest rate. Wow. Actually, just on that, um, obviously, historically, 25 basis points being the, um, you know, the, the unit of, of you know, increment. Um, do you see them even, perhaps even needing to, to uh, halve that perhaps or, or reduce it in order to um, avoid the effect that you just mentioned, the um, that exponential effect? Well, uh, look, I, 
I think if it got to the point where they're a bit worried about that 25 might be too much and they would do 12 or 13, then they probably shouldn't be raising interest rates. I mean, yeah. I think by the time you get around to realizing that's the right policy choice, then you've got to you've got to be confident that you can, uh, you know, be hiking in 25 basis point increments. I mean, I think they've got to do the first one at 15 just to get it onto that 25 increment, given the cash rate is um, it's 10 basis points now. But after that, yeah, you'd move in in 25s, but uh, you probably just don't need to move uh, too aggressively. So mm-hmm. you know, one or two, get you started, wait and see what happens, and then. Uh, you know, you move, you keep tightening if you think you need to. But um, I think the, the, the main point is, and the bond market kind of reflects this, is that you don't need to go too high to get back to a level which is kind of, uh, you know, has the economy in equilibrium. And I, I suppose if you then think about it, that level being very low, it just means next time a shock comes around, we don't have too much uh, rate relief that we can give households and businesses. Mm. Yep. All right. Very good. We are running out of time. Um... I've got a question, but is there anything else from you, gentlemen? I might just flick over to the question and we'll uh, leave uh, Gareth to get back to uh, his, his senior role, his day job. You okay, Jed? Oh, yeah, we're good. Yep. All right. Um, what have we got? Okay, so Danny here. Uh, Australia's, uh, how does Australia's job recovery compare uh, with other economies like the US? What advice would you give to a year 12 student on what career to choose? And considering an uncertain future, <laughs> okay, I'll go to the chief economist. Yeah, got a bank for that one. Good on you, uh, Danny. Have you got any thoughts there, Gareth or fellas? On on the career, Australia's job recovery, perhaps in in relation to other economies like the US. Uh, look, uh, a little bit on this earlier, but... Yeah, up and, up until June, I mean, we were we were the standout. We had a, a better labour market in June than we had um, pre-COVID. Um, not there's not many countries around the world that are in that, that place. Um, so you know, we would we looked very very good at that point. Um, but now with each passing month, kind of directionally, we're going to be heading a little bit backwards while other countries are moving forward. So probably won't know until till next year how we compare versus everyone else. But you know, as a, as at the middle of this year or that you know, just four weeks ago, we looked very very good. Hmm. Okay. Fantastic. All right, mate. Well, look, uh, thanks very much once again for coming on. Almost, uh, as I mentioned at the start there, almost exactly a year from the um, the last time. Hopefully, we can make it a little bit shorter next time. But um, would you about, no, just while we've got you on the line, of course, um, just uh, share perhaps how uh, obviously our audience can follow some of your work and, and, and track what you're doing out there and all the good work you're doing. Well, look, at, at, we've unfortunately our uh, research website, Commonwealth Bank, is password protected, but we've we, that we're going to be shifting um, to a model soon where that doesn't need to be the case. So um, when that happens, all, all the research will be publicly available. Uh, in the meantime, we used to have some issues with compliance around what we could publicly put out, what we couldn't. But fortunately, um, speaking of restrictions, those uh, compliance restrictions have been eased. So we can post a little bit more on LinkedIn now. So I've sort of more recently put put up a few notes that I think you know, are relevant for people. So if anyone wants to just add me on LinkedIn, they can they can get up, uh, they can then see the stuff that I put up. Fantastic. All right, no worries. Well, look, yeah, uh, from the team as always, yeah, thanks for coming along, mate. We look forward to getting on again really soon. Nice to chat. And hopefully uh, the next time we do this, <laughs> we'll be third time lucky and we won't be in a lockdown. That's all right. Yeah, and hopefully yeah, the technology helps us out a little bit more as well. So uh, anyway, now that's all good. Uh, we'll roll, roll across to our viewer question of the week. Uh, and so feel free to drop your answers in the uh, the comments here, of course. Uh, how low 
will the unemployment rate go? Um, it's an interesting, interesting question. Um, always, and, and perhaps why as well, if you like, just don't drop in a number. We're always happy to, uh, to read that and reflect on that. So um, thanks to uh, everyone, uh, fellas as well, Leith and Damien as always, uh, for, for a good show. And we'll jump into um, the end notes. Thanks again to all of those uh, who've watched in uh, for live for another great episode. And I hope you uh, of course, of, and of course to uh, Danny, I think it was, who's asked, asked a great question, did get a lot of questions today. We've had plenty to talk about, though. I hope you've taken away some great ideas. And if you haven't already, feel free to click like on the video now to give us some feedback. Uh, if you'd like to stay uh, up to date or see more of our content, head over to nicholaswealth.com forward slash content to stay up to date on news from us. Follow us on social media. And finally, if you know anyone who gets something out of today's episode, let them know about it, share with a friend and help our show grow. So thanks again for tuning in from myself, Tim Fuller and the team, and we'll look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers.